fact, uh, we're, we're meeting for the first time and we're doing it live. So there's always the, the, the slightly awkward um, introducing each other. But I mean, I guess we, we created a, a video and sort of um, uh, that was inspired by your founder. And then we sort of got in touch and we're in Tenzin. I don't know if you saw, but Tenzin and I had a conversation yesterday about sort of the Buddhist approach to nonviolent action. But I'd love to find out what you guys, and I saw your TED talk and, and I think it's amazing, but I'd be really interested in sort of a little bit about your background and what you guys are doing at the Institute. Um, yeah. So some of the people probably haven't seen your TED talk. So it'd be great if you could maybe introduce yourselves a little bit and then we could jump into the conversation. Sure. So I can introduce myself and maybe just speak a bit about um, uh, the work at the Albert Einstein Institution that I've been doing for now more than 14 years. So my name is Jamila Rakiv. I'm the executive director of the Einstein Institution. And the Einstein Institution is a organization founded by the scholar Gene Sharp. And Gene Sharp is the sort of foremost scholar and thinker on a, on a field of study and technique of action called uh, nonviolent struggle which is also known as civil resistance or people power. These are the terms that, that we like to use. Um, our work can be distinguished from the sort of traditional peace building or nonviolence approaches because we focus on the pragmatic uh, nature of the technique. So we think that overwhelmingly when people have used nonviolent means, they've done so because for whatever reason, they thought nonviolent means would offer them some type of advantages or they were outmatched militarily. So this doesn't require a belief system. We think people can take effective action without all believing the same thing. And we have, we think history really backs that up. So our focus has been really to look at when people have used nonviolent means of struggle, what works? What leads to success? What are the factors that lead to failure? And how can those lessons that are distilled from the history uh, make what people are doing around the world more effective today. Uh, and so Gene Sharp and now many other scholars have kind of compiled all of this information. It's often, you know, in books that are 900 pages or sometimes, you know, in more sort of popularized fashion, 70 pages or so, or even smaller essays that really talk about uh, nonviolent struggle and the dynamics about how it actually operates. And so that's what we do at the Albert Einstein Institution, an organization that was founded to study nonviolent resistance. We think this is a technique that requires study, uh, that uh, is not uh, something set in stone. It's something that is going to change a lot with, with changes in, in the world. And that we need to, uh, you know, both collect this information about what activists are doing, what works well, what doesn't work well, and then make that available through publications in translated form, in different formats, including audio formats, and then share that knowledge. So it's really about knowledge and an, un an understanding that knowledge leads to greater effectiveness in nonviolent struggle as it does with other types of action. Uh, because we, looking around the world today, we're seeing that we're facing opponents that are uh, very well organized, that have lots of resources, and uh, activists who have an abundant of, abundance of creativity often are lacking on the strategic element. So what we do at the Albert Einstein Institution is really emphasize the strategy and how you can develop a strategy that has a chance of working. Um, and Aliyah has been a part of our organization for a couple of years and uh, maybe can introduce herself. And, and I really look forward to this conversation and uh, speaking with you, you all. Okay, yeah. So my name is Aliyah Braley. I, like Jamila said, I've been working 
um, with the Albert Einstein Institution for a couple of years, most recently as the director of programs. Previously, I did some work with Canvas, which is the Center for Applied Nonviolent Action and Strategies based in Belgrade, Serbia. Um, one of my biggest uh, areas of research has been in the potential of nonviolent action uh, to be used against ISIS. Um, so that is something that is both a potential and also something that's a reality. There's a lot of people working on that. Um, so that's uh, one area of interest of mine. To add to what Jamila said about what we do at the Einstein Institution, um, to make it a little more concrete, a lot of um, times it's consultations with activists from all over the world who, and workshops and translations of texts into various different uh, languages and um, also consultations with governments and military bodies because there are nonviolent action isn't necessarily just something that's applicable to citizens but can also be used for national defense it has been used for national defense it could transform the way national defense is done could transform the way humanitarian interventions are done um so the uh, can transform the way policing is done. So the, it can touch upon a myriad of um, really huge issues that we're facing today. But I would say that organizations like ours have had a big impact, but they're relatively small. And um, the time is really ripe for a much larger research efforts and implementation um, pilots on how to kind of catch up with all of the brave activists in the world and even help them in terms of figuring out what works and what contexts and things like that. So I'm really looking towards the future. So is the Einstein Institution in general, um, in terms of how we can help people who nonviolent action is being used at a greater rate than any time in recorded history, as we know, um, right now. Interesting. And I guess I'll, we'll just do a quick introduction since we just yeah. had a long conversation the other day, but um, I'll let you introduce yourself. Uh, among other things, I run the Dalai Lama Center for Ethics and Transformative Values here at MIT, and uh, I've been interested in this in all the conflict resolution stuff in Sri Lanka, and right now, mostly the FARC and Colombia. Yeah, um, and, you know, he also work with Mother Teresa and Dalai Lama and he's uh, he's we teach at awareness class at, at at MIT and you know I think one of our things that we've been pushing a little bit is um um and is because uh, in addition to the nonviolence um, one of the things that Tenzin's been teaching us a lot about is disciplined compassion which is different just than compassion for people you already liked so it's a very different thing and also one of the things we're working on it you know there's a sort of uh, a wellness boom, but and at MIT and other places, a lot of times it's about medicating the people who are having trouble, but we're f trying to figure out how to amplify people who are happy and how can you turn things like joy and happiness also into a much more active thing than something that seems sort of just passive and mellow. Um, and, uh, and I'm the director of the Media Lab and this is sort of my channel, so I won't introduce myself, but, but, but just sort of one, just to carry a thread. So, so one of the, conversations that we had on Twitter, which sounds like you're thinking about is, um, you know, I, 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 in, in this post I put up recently, I cited, you know, a study, um, I'm trying to remember what the first, what this, it was, um, the Marshall Gans showed me, but it was why civil resistance works, the strategic logic of nonviolent conflict by uh, Marie, Maria Stevens and, um, Erica Chenoweth. And it, it's, it's an interesting study. It basically was saying that, you know, in the group of uh, international conflicts they had, um, 
nonviolent action um, was you know, substantially more effective. Having said that, it's still only 50% of the time, but it's still more effective. And they went through the reasons. And, and then, you know, some people criticized me saying, well, that was back then. And it's in a, you know, and in simple regimes and simple systems that aren't that sophisticated, nonviolent action works. But um, one of the kids who's involved in Occupy said, you know, Homeland Security and these guys, they don't do violence back. They use, you know, pepper spray. They sort of systematically deconstruct you and make you Ill- illegitimate using media. And it's, it's sophisticated. And they said it's, and with out of, out of context, it's, it's not Life Magazine and Gandhi anymore. And even Gandhi and even Martin Luther King, you had this, you know, threat of violence by Malcolm X and other things. So you can't just talk about the nonviolent action without all these other things. And, um, and you're being simplistic and, and blah, blah, blah. And I think it's a fair criticism. But the question is, okay, well, can we become more sophisticated and overcome that? Um, there's another set of things that, um, w- we do here. We look at Twitter. We, we have, you know, a lot of data. So we look at the data and we see how, um, how, um, for instance, and there were some articles recently in the New York Times Magazine about how people are taking these, uh, making these Facebook pages that have hate. And it's interesting because these guys are actually making money. They're driving traffic to websites with spam ads and just fueling this, um, this, these, you know, like American Patriot or My Favorite Gun. And, and it's, a, it's a very interesting thing because those spammers that used to do like these spam networks online are just making money off of political hate. And there's this really interesting just wave of, of, of negative violent energy that's coming out. And, um, and it's, and it's, it seems to perpetuate at a very different kind of velocity and power than we've had in the past. So, so it's really interesting that you guys are thinking about sort of how this plays out in the modern day and not just the history of, I mean, I, I think the history, I think it's important to talk to the John Lewis's and the, and the historical people who participated in civil rights, because I think part of what's missing is the, is the training and the discipline that you know, we have. And just to be clear, the history is only 40, 50 years old. That's true. That's yeah, true. Yeah. But, but. Is humans, it? Is it 40 or 50 years yeah. old? I think it goes back hundreds. When we're talking about this context of history with Gandhi, John Lewis, Martin Luther King, yeah. that most people actually, you know, think of Gandhi as a person of antiquity. Yes. Know? Like he existed like 400 years ago or 500 years ago. Just to recognize is, that, that, you know, when you're talking about Gandhi and Mandela's and Tutu of these days, it's all in the span of last yes. 50 years. Yes. Yes. Also, the Chenoweth Stefan study was published in 2013, and I think analyzed data through 2006, maybe. So So it's not um, antiquated by any means. Mm -hmm. Though I think the point certainly stands that, for instance, dictatorial dictatorial governments are um, getting better at repressing people uh, and repressing their uh, shrinking their space for civil society. Um, but that doesn't necessarily touch upon the core reasons that Chenoweth and Stefan and others like Jean Sharp have identified for nonviolent action being more successful. It only changes the battleground, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, and so a lot of uh, times what we've been talking about, um, Jamila has mentioned to this, is a kind of nonviolent arms race. So just as, um, you know, dictatorial regimes are improving their methods. So we also have the responsibility to do so, both activists, but also those of us who um, have the privilege of being in research institutions. Um, yeah. yeah, I think, Joey, you talked about a whole number of points, uh, including the need for innovation and study. Um, it is a changing battlefield, and I think increasingly 
uh, we've seen that some of the some of the best innovation is happening on the part of governments that want to undermine and defeat it. Um, I think it is still relevant. Um, I think one of the new types of understanding that non that that uh, repressive governments are are realizing is that violence sometimes doesn't work that sometimes repression doesn't work, that there needs to be more sort of innovative methods of undermining these movements. Mm -hmm. And that's, of course, very dangerous. We're proponents of spreading this knowledge as far and wide as possible because we want to see scenarios in the future where opposing sides are using these means as opposed to violence against each other. And we've seen already examples of that. So I think that that's, that's the sort, sort of future that I think um, we can feel hopeful about. Because conflict is going to exist. Mm -hmm. We can't deal with conflict. Conflict is both inevitable um, and, and often very positive. Um, but what we need to do is change the way we do conflict. Mm -hmm. And we think this is, constitutes a very powerful means that, uh, that needs to increasingly be considered, whether by governments or by resistance movements. So, yeah. The power of nonviolent action is um, also attributed to the fact that a lot of governments, especially um, authoritarian mm -hmm. regimes, are using nonviolent actions to their benefit. They're increasingly um, training their military in nonviolent action in order to um, use, to um, uh, enact aggressive maneuvers um, because they see the strategic benefit of it. Um, or even, you know, staging protests and paying protesters to come out for their side. So I think that um, that's also an indication that um, if anyone in the world right now is understanding how effective nonviolent action is, it's actually the governments who are most threatened by it or other actors who are trying to repress people, um, not only governments, but governments are often who have uh, focused on. Um, they're the ones taking it the most seriously and, you know, creating military studies to figure out how to undermine them. And I think that attests to the power of nonviolent action. It doesn't um, actually argue against it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it seems like, you know, some of them are, you know, technically advanced and are studying it as a science. But even with Arab Spring, I remember that we mentioned this yesterday, but because I was there right after Tunisia, it seemed, oh, we can do this. And then Egypt was harder, Libya was harder. By the time we get to Syria... They've kind of figured out the pattern, right? And I think what's interesting. What do you think? It's, it's, it's I would continue, yeah. and I would, I would have a different analysis. But yeah, no, no, go, no, go ahead. No, I'd love to hear because because it felt like some of the simple tricks. First of all, you you get you have this surprise disappears, right? <laughs> Which is often you know the the because a lot of times I notice that when the regime fumbles. You can take advantage of that very quickly. And it's the, the more they've seen it play out, the more that they're be, being careful. And in Syria, I think they were more technically advanced as well, but they, they were able to kind of put the kibosh on the social media and, and in more strategic ways. And one of our friends who's, who's in prison, I mean, they, they, they tortured him, got his passwords, let him go. And I mean, they, they built up little tricks that sort of piled up in a way to sort of just start to rip apart the networks that were being used to coordinate. But then I think so, so directed is... Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then you see that for that all the time. 
Yeah. Just how they're getting better at circumventing government control, they're getting better at communication with each other, mm-hmm. they're understanding the need for nonviolent discipline, mm-hmm. they're understanding how important messages. So I have a question about nonviolent discipline. That was one of the things when John Lewis was speaking, he was talking about the basement of the churches where they used to beat each other up and spit yeah. on each other and just train and train and train like some like martial arts yeah. dojo. I don't see that right now, at least in America. I mean, but is this a is this a thing that you you've seen people? Yeah, yeah, we have seen it. Yeah. yeah, I think maybe it's okay that we're not seeing it. These, okay, these kinds of efforts are happening behind the scenes. Yeah, yeah. As sometimes they should. Um, I think one of the uh, more recent examples was the Hong Kong rebel uh, movement. Um, in which they prepared for the response from the police and military because they understood that if they're going to present the challenge to their, um, you know, uh, to, to, to their opponent, um, they're going to see that their opponent use maximum violence that they can get away with. And so we saw examples of like massive kind of teachings where they would hold these, you know, what we call conferences, and they would bring potential participants to the movement in a room and explain to them and, and, and really educate them about what civil disobedience is. Mm-hmm. This is the deliberate breaking of a law for mm-hmm. political purposes and you accept the punishment. Right. And this is not just you, you know, undermining the rule of law. Mm-hmm. This is, uh, it's, it's, you know, got a very specific political application. And one thing that I was, you know, I, I'm really quite impressed with is that they um, anticipated uh, being hit with water cannons and they prepared people for what that would feel like. So they, they would remove from the situation the type of fear that's instilled by confronting the unexpected. And so I think that um, uh, that is happening and it certainly should be happening more and I think this is more There's so much to say. And then there's also something else about that, which is even in the civil rights movement, there was debate about how much do we subject ourselves to what we know is going to be a repressive situation. And that's a choice that every movement has to make, and it's not always, let's go for it and let's prepare ourselves to face the bullets or face the water cannons. And there have been examples of learning of um, different types of tactics that that might be more appropriate. For instance, in Syria, they did something called the flying protest, which is, I don't know, you heard about it, but they um, basically would um, kind of give the authorities the impression they were protesting somewhere else, mm-hmm. protest in another place, um, call the media, hold the signs that the state, the royal signs were actually in the back of their heads, and then disperse from that space before the police could get there. Because it wasn't going to help the strength of their movement to get shot at, mm-hmm. at that point. And it's not... The, the kind of non-violent, non-violent action isn't the type of thing where you're, you're seeking out suffering. Mm-hmm. Um, it should be about strengthening people ultimately mm-hmm. and, and achieving mm-hmm. the goals of mm-hmm. you know, freedom and human rights. So I want to back up actually and ask a question about your institution because because uh, there's a bunch of stuff on your site which looks like research, but when you talk, there's also a bunch of activism, which sounds like you're you're doing capacity building and, and deploying. What, what is it? Both is that what's the balance? Is, is there is there is it really impact that you're primarily focused on, or is it sort of is there the study of is is, is part of it? 
Yeah, I think we're trying to, uh, we have sort of three parts to our mission. And so first of all, we're not an advocacy organization. We don't take political positions. We work with people, even those who we may not agree with. We work with people who may have favored violence in the past and may do so in the future. But for the particular situation they're facing, think that this technique is more likely to win them their objectives. And we think that's how you reduce violence in the world by sort of expanding the, the, the potential of this technique. Um, so the first part is research, just increasingly understanding and sharing the results of that research. Um, and uh, through publications and through consultations and through workshops. And then the third part is um, uh, influencing policymakers. Um, so when possible, meeting with people who uh, consider the military um, option and sort of making available other option because that's it's really important that they consider that I'm going to say something, because, and I don't know how confidential it is, so I'll say it in sort of vague ways, but the, I know I met somebody whose job it is to go after people who may be a risk to national security, but to before they send in people and arrest somebody, that their job is to try to nudge the person back away from something that might be violent and that they've been fairly successful at this kind of nudging. And so it's, uh, um, I don't, I don't, I don't know if you've, you, you, you know, people doing that, but, but it, but it is interesting to me that the, the government was starting to deploy fairly nonviolent tactics. Now this is a different thing. It's not, non, it's not actually sort of open nonviolent protest, but it's an, it's a, it's an institution looking at somebody who's going to possibly be violent and, nudge them away from it, which is, is, does that fall within the realm of the stuff that you're working on, which is, it's not nonviolent protest, but it is sort of a, an action towards nonviolence. Do, do you know what I mean? I, I, maybe I'm being a little bit too vague, but do you know what I'm talking about? Just generally. I don't So we can talk about that after, yeah. but, 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 but I, but I, but I did find it somewhat um, positive that I mean, it makes sense that you, but, but the problem is I see with like the police forces when I talk to people who have been studying at the MacArthur Foundation who are funding a lot of criminal justice work. And a lot of it is obviously police violence. And, and a lot of it is the training is all, you get medals for escalating um, conflict. You don't get medals for nonviolent action. And so, so part of it is just the, the, the training, right? Right. Uh, that's part of my curiosity also is that, um, I mean, we, I understand the usage and sort of full-blown political movements and, and so on. Have the U.S. any any part of the United States uh, police force ever approached you guys, saying, "Let's talk about you know, especially in, in light of all the things that are going on right now with race violence and everything." Have they ever approached you, asking, "Let's talk about a strategy for nonviolent conversations or nonviolent protests around racism?" And, and, and what's happening in, in the U.S. today? So, I don't, I don't recall mm -hmm. any uh, specific uh, no, uh, approach by departments in the United States. States. Right. But, um, 
but you haven't heard of any police department saying by the way we are applying this I because part of the thing is you know when we talk about non-violence we also have to talk about the context of things my hope is a lot of people do it because of its efficacy uh, and, and valuing life. But then there are those who do it for PR because any, any alternate movement or any alternate course of action will hurt the public image of a government or problem. Is that a problem? It's, it's not a question of problem. It's a question of how what's at stake and how far they're willing to go up until what point will they be non-violent and then at some point they will say, sure. you know, let's just forget about this thing and let's do that. And the issue of, you know, how we value life and where we value life, you know, so part of it is that it's nice that U.S. military is interested in action. But domestically, where there are more incidents of violence of all nature, why are you know, they interested in sort of exploring policy and all that? It's, it's just a curiosity that I'm interested in, for example, as a, uh, as a military agency in non-violent action in Baltic regions, for example. Mm -hmm. But not in Ferguson, not in Minnesota, not in Boston. It's just—it's interesting how we allocate value of life when we talk about money. That does remind me, though, of something. It goes back to something Joy was also saying that nonviolent action isn't always about protest or even about refusal, but also about creation, creating alternative institutions. Um, and there, there are, I have heard of, of um, policing, policing efforts, efforts by civilians that, that are non-violent, that, that have decreased the level of crime, mm -hmm. um, including um, police, police violence in mm -hmm. communities. Mm -hmm. That would be an example of an alternative institution that a police department could potentially learn from. Right. And, and it also, I think, has to do with the fact that, that we can't necessarily expect the police, the police to just think of it themselves, themselves but, but I think it really, um, there's a lot of mobilization and research that we have presented to them right. for, for these people who are police who, you know, do, do their, their lives on the line as well, well to, um, to, to experiment with new options. I think, I think that's, that's a very important point about non-violence as an alternate form of institution. Uh, I think that's what Gandhi was intending. Yes. You know, it wasn't about mitigating violence, it wasn't about let's just get rid of this one. Scenario of revolution. So empowering people. Yeah, idea of let's, let's think longitudinally how we can yeah. create alternate non violence. Yeah. yeah. I, I think, think the best movements get that. I think right. the best movements get that there's right. this really important 
social empowerment piece right, that is right. a prerequisite to facing an opponent right. that, you know, um, weak people cannot be expected to take right. effective uh, action that people need to, you know, first build. And sometimes, sometimes, um, you know, sometimes fighting someone directly, and I'm mean, fighting them violently, gives them more credibility than actually ignoring them and doing something else. Um, there's that kind of power of just making the other irrelevant by creating a new system. And honestly, I, I'd be curious to know, um, Joey or, or, or Tenzin, your perspective of the Media Lab on that, because I see it as a bit of an alternative institution in the education space. Um, and I kind of wondered if that influenced your decision to look into disobedience and... Yeah, I think, I think that, uh, you know, uh, we come at it from a different angle. And this is why it's interesting, because I have an interest in civics, but that's not where we started. I mean, I think my one-liner about disobedience is you don't get a Nobel Prize by doing what you're told. And questioning authority and thinking for yourself is how science and academics should work. It turns out democracy is the same way, right? Democracy, you should be questioning those in power. And, you know, people like Jefferson said, maybe there should be a revolution every 30 years. And so the, the, the idea of poking um, the system to make it sure that it's, it's you know, on the right track is an important piece. And, and the problem that we have, I think, both are in science, but also it's different structure in civics is that um, with um, the ability for these mega organizations to become extremely powerful, both financially and intelligence-wise, that the ability to poke power has gotten harder. And it's the same with science funding. Science funding has become huge, and so it becomes extremely political. And so it's harder and harder for... And then these projects like to invent things. You don't have garage inventors anymore. You've got huge labs with lots of grad students and lots of politics. And so, so our thing about disobedience was really how do you give people the courage to do something that may not pass peer review, may not get funded. And that's kind of our niche, is to protect, support. And in, in fact, MIT is that way. So when we did our Forbidden Research Conference, and one of administration said oh, that made us very uncomfortable, but that's exactly what we need to be doing, because if not at MIT, where else could you, with academic rigor, talk about these these difficult things? And so, so that's kind of our role is this space. Now, the tricky thing, and, and some of the negative feedback I got about the forbidden resources. We had, we talked about kids on campus hacking and, you know, whether the police should allow them to do it. And so you can't make it too cuddly, um, coddly, you know, it, it can't be safe. You've got to like teach kids what it's like in the real world, which is if you get arrested, you get thrown in jail, you know? And so, so one of the tricky things about the student thing, and this ties to our conversation yesterday about political correctness, right? right? It's, it's, you, you gotta have real criticism. You have to have real you know, so the, so the training has to be real. And right, I think right. that's one of the problems that we, all, we also have, which is the reverse, is you give people too much freedom and then, and then you, or, not, or too much protection is, is right. difficult. Yeah, I think there's a context here that's it's kind of interesting, right? That, you know, most times when you think of nonviolent movement, uh, you think of, you know, people actually going out doing protests, you know, then, you know, police holding them off, or fire rubber bullets, and those kinds of things. And that's one sort of scenario, one, one sort of scenario. And then you have other kinds of scenarios where you have hackers, where you have people just sending viruses and things of that nature. And part of, you know, this was the, one of the things I think we were, we were trying to uh, talk about yesterday also, is that, you know, how do we think of nonviolent action when it comes to cyber stuff? You know, how do you make... Uh, cyber action, a non-violent action, because I think a lot of violence that we see amplification is happening in cyberspace, right? 
you look at Facebook, you look at any form of social media. In some ways, that's a form of violence escalation. And, and, and that's also one of the things that people kept pointing out was the definition of violence, right? Because, you know, the, the, the people being hit with it will call, you know, denial of service attacks or, or even nonviolent protests, they'll call it violence. And so how do you, there's also the whole framing of the conversation. It was an interesting thing that I, I look, was looking at from the Center for Civic Media, where if you look at the words on Twitter, um, um, I think it was, was it Freddie Mac, it was the Baltimore um, um, protests. The minute President Obama uses the word thug, everybody starts using the word riot instead of protest, and all the words start to become negative, right? And it's just like one word reframes the whole conversation, even though they're doing roughly the same thing, you know? And, and it's, 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 it's fascinating kind of how, how just people can, and that's part of the, I think, the, the science of the current version, which is in, in the past you had reporters and the time, uh, the Life magazine cover, but now you've got all these people on Twitter and you need to manage, um, or not manage, you need to, to participate and be cognizant of that part. Right. I mean, are, are there things, things that you guys have looked, looked at or, or doing things for, let's, let's say, non-violent cyber, cyber action? action. You know, because, because, I mean, you, you look at, like, the, the, the socio-political conversation, you look at any form of conversation, I mean, it's just a lot of hate you know, and, and on, on the internet. And, and then you have the, you know, the culture of hacking, good and bad, and so on. Is, is, that, that, a, is that, that a domain that, that you guys have explored or, or have any thoughts about? Well, we have thoughts, but uh, we're, that's really not our focus of study. Um, I think, you know, we're not technologists. We're, we definitely work with them. And I think that it's so incredibly relevant to our work. I mean, speaking uh, of changing yeah. battlefields. Yeah, you know, sure. Is this another emerging Sure. Yeah, I think that, you know, obviously the, um, uh, the technological space is one area where often governments have a lot of resources uh, to surveil their citizens. But individuals are often, you know, harness the power of individuals around the world with what they're doing these denial of service attacks and it's the sort of innovation of some of the 198 methods you know um overloading an administrative system used to mean that you write the draft board and you write long letters and cause them to be inefficient right. and now you have you know how do you make uh, an office a physical office crash you know right. they're applying that to you know so, so how do you how do you um you know cause a crash of, of government servers for example so yeah you guys would know uh, a lot about that um and the problem is that becomes very asymmetrical now, right. right where one person can crash because uh, it used to be you know letter writing stuff is a proxy for having a lot of support but now it can be money it can be a clever hacker you know and so so it's and that's where i think that it becomes slightly undemocratic because a lot of these actions and, and unsustainable too. Yeah. And there's actually some really interesting research on the technology and nonviolent resistance. Is this uh, researcher Zainab Tufixi, and she talks about how the kinds of uh, preparation and planning that used to be necessary to get thousands of people in the street is no longer necessary because we've reduced the cost of organizing, and you can put a Facebook invite out to a demonstration, but the quality of the participation has gone down uh, because people don't really know why they're there. Uh, people don't know what's required for nonviolent discipline, and they're really not prepared to make the sacrifices um, and to really that, that are required to sustain the movement in the long term to actually win them uh, long term changes. And yeah, 
It's very worrying, for sure. Yeah, and to continue on that, those those things that used to be necessary to say overloaded administrative system or really put a monkey wrench in a system um, had the prerequisites of building structures of power outside of those that already existed, often in civil society. And so if you have, you know, one hacker taking down a system, those structures of power outside aren't existing. And not only do they not help to create the necessary change, but those structures of power often help to defend the necessary change. So if you move from a dictatorship to a democracy, it's something that is not a one-time win. It needs to be protected, just as we're seeing it in America. You know, we can't just sit on our laurels and say, oh, we have democracy, we're done. Um, we need to continue. Um, so I, the nonviolent action is defined in this way is really relevant to to all societies, um, not just those who are struggling under dictatorship. So we have somebody on Facebook named Jess Souza who's asking, um, what do you suggest we do to help Trump supporters be um, less violent or, or nonviolent? I mean, is that because you were saying that you, you, you even if you don't agree with them, you help people think about nonviolence. I mean, do you think they would be a target of your work? Sure. Yes. To, you know, uh, and and we have a very specific definition of violence. Yeah. Our violence, uh, our definition of violence, doesn't include all harm. We're talking about physical violence or the threat of physical violence. Mm -hmm. So, uh, destruction of property is not included. Hate speech is not included. That is something else, and uh, so that's that's our definition. So. Um, I uh, I guess uh, I, I don't know uh, enough examples about Trump supporters using violence. I think that often this hate speech does lead to instances where violence is tolerated or supported. Um, and uh, yeah, so I I think it, I think probably people uh, on the right, including new populist movements around the world, not just here in our country, are using nonviolent resistance. And we've seen lots of examples of that. And I think that has led in part to their effectiveness and to their achieving uh, a lot of gains in, in Europe and, and in here in the United States. Yeah. Glenn Beck, actually, it was Glenn Beck, right? He recently unveiled a whole system of training for nonviolent activists mm -hmm. on the right. Um, he's, so, he's, he's changing his mind quite a bit these days. Uh, <laughs> Which is really interesting. Another example of, you know, okay, if the, if you, the Second Amendment with the guns is so important to you then uh, to protect yourself, then it suddenly seems that there's this next step that was needed, uh, which was something stronger in that, I think. Yeah, well, yeah. well I, I, I remember going to a gun class to try to understand some of the way they think. And, and, you know, they, like one of the police guys there was a trainer, said, well, an armed society is a polite society, you know. And so, so I think there is a, sort of nonviolent way of thinking about guns. I mean, it, obviously it's, it's doesn't make, it doesn't actually end up that way, but that was their ideal, right? Was, was not guns to hurt each other. It's guns as a deterrent for violence, you know, because violence without guns is cheaper, you know? And so, but, um, but yeah, it's, 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 um, it's also, I mean, one other, the last thing I want to sort of pitch to you also is like when I, I remember when I was a kid, I, I I was kind of into punk rock, and, and it, it, there's this kind of aggressive energy, and you didn't want to connect yourself to some warm fuzzy movement. And when and and, and punk rock is is it, you know in various forms is always sort of around. And, and there's like the straight edge movement. One of my our friends, one of my biggest troublemaker friends, Sean Bonner, he's a straight edge, and he's got tattoos. He's he's a real troublemaker. 
but he doesn't do drugs, he doesn't, you know, drink, and, and that is a kind of nonviolence, and it's, it's like being anti-establishment by, like, denying them that label, you know, and, 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 I, and I feel like part of what we're missing a little bit in getting some of these kids is they have that anger, but it's not being channeled to a active thing. So, so that was what I really liked about your, your TED talk was it was, it was powerful, right? And, and I think that's what your nonviolent action is, 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 because nonviolence sounds kind of passive, right? So nonviolence is like sitting on the couch, yes. right? And, and that's not what you're saying. This is the right? absence of violence, not what are you actually doing that's it. Yeah. yeah. Exerting power, getting power and denying it to your opponent. I mean, it's all, this is the fundamental basis of our work. And I am not a pacifist and did not start as a pacifist. I'm someone that uh, it took a long time to learn that nonviolent resistance, I mean, you can be tough and not advocate for violence and not support it or use it. That's incredibly empowering. And I think that's what the appeal is about nonviolent resistance, that it is a powerful way to. Uh, struggle for particular objectives that are important to you. And a lot of the most uh, youth are extremely important in almost every, uh, you know, statistically nonviolent movements that create change for various reasons, much because, you know, they, they see a different future they want to live in. They have tend to have free time, especially in economies that aren't doing well. Um, they, yeah, and so uh, a lot of the successful nonviolent movements throughout history have been um, have had strong youth leadership and they've been cool, frankly. They've been, you know, using rock and roll, if whatever the cool music is of the time. I mean, today you have like Pussy Riot or something in, um, in uh, Russia. And I, so I think that, uh, in, because it is about ultimately freedom and, and having a vision. And I think young people do have that and they do want that, but, um, but there's also the need, again, if you're going to win to, have a plan. Um, have a plan and have a strategy, and I think that. But it has to be sustainably engaged, right? Well, one one of the things we have is a, a thing called the mood meter, where we can check if people are smiling, and we use we put them across campus to see the mood of the campus. But one of the experiments that they did that I loved was they typed news footage of the Occupy it was during Occupy, and it was like the mood was always high, you know, because I think in order to get people to show up, it, it's got to be somewhat. Festive is maybe not the right word, but 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 it, but it has to feel engaging, and I think that's that that design it depends on the community, it depends on the issue, but I think a lot of times we're missing that, right? We get a lot of shoulds, but it really, I think you really, and and that's where I also it's interesting as as you start to do the research, and I'd love to hear more about how as you deploy the the, the cultural piece, the, how do you engage the music musicians, the designers, you know, and I think that that's. Another piece of what we like to think about at the media lab a lot is is, is design, and we're we're about media arts and sciences, and I think that the art side is often overlooked um, at, by by at least when you when you just look at it through like a, a, a security or an intelligence or a sociology lens. Sometimes we miss that part. No, I think artists at the forefront of nomadic movements, and often especially in oppressive environments where art is the expression, and, and, and they can use that expression in a way where you can't outwardly. You know, criticize the regime. They're using you know more so symbolic methods, humor for sure. Yeah, yeah. That's relative. They create fashion statements. I mean, you know, yeah. when, when Gandhi started his movement with that hat, every non-violent movement after that, even in the United States, people started wearing that hat yeah, as, yeah. A, as a sign that. And even in places like Syria, people are using um, humor, or it's been 
terms term lactivism, um, yeah. but I think surgical prevention person said that. Yeah. Um, so and fear. Exactly. So it's been found that the success of uh, a growing nonviolent movement can be measured by enthusiasm versus fear. And things that reduce fear, laughing at your opponent, seeing in a way that the weaknesses, because you can see sometimes, you know, the opponent can look like some kind of infallible, just like monolith, but actually there can be just kind of bullies that that have you have weaknesses. a lot of, exactly. Yeah, that that's you can laugh about. The hardest part, though, is some of these bullies don't have many weaknesses because they don't care about anything. That was the other thing in that Guardian article about Milianopolis, right? And and that's, that's their, their superpower. Their it's superpower. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's, and and uh, uh, but uh, but they, they think everyone cares. Care. <laughs> yeah, I don't think they have to care necessarily. But there's realities of political power and where it comes from that we often overlook. And they do have weaknesses. And I think uh, the part of the problem is is that we see these opponents as being all knowing and all powerful. Um, and actually, they have weaknesses. And we have to focus on their weaknesses and our strengths. And how do you strengthen the nonviolent movement and undermine the opponent? And that those both need to happen simultaneously. For instance, they almost always rely on people economically. If you, you know, if people refuse to work, you know, general strikes have been often extremely successful. Um, they can't run, they can't get their money in their coffers without that. Um, another weakness is legitimacy, honestly. You know, if you don't care about anything, people are going to start resenting the heck out of you. And um, they're going to start being more willing to stand up no matter what it takes. So... Uh, that, that great, great loss, loss of legitimacy that comes with not caring can really backfire. So I guess part, part of it is time, time right? Because, because you can, can have, have a hate-driven hate bottom-up movement, but once you actually try to control something or get power, power that, that doesn't work anymore, right? right? And I think you've seen governments where the, the overthrow is really easy, but the legitimacy... Because you, know, you don't necessarily need as much legitimacy to do the overthrow because you're undermining somebody else's. But once that's done, it's pretty hard. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and we see that today. I mean, yeah. you, you can overthrow it within a month, and then there's no stabilization. And you make and dissolve constitution seventeen times in five years. It's uh, pretty bad. Mm -hmm. So I think we're running out of time. We need a little bit of off the record conversation. So maybe we can do this again if we have something to talk about. Yeah, that would be great. I think yeah. we have lots to talk about. Cool. Thanks a lot. Yeah, thanks so much. Thank you.